This episode is the second episode I recorded back in January. I'm wondering why it's taken me so long to post. A superficial reason maybe because the audio was crap and I wanted to become a better editor before releasing it. That also says something about how much I care for the person in this episode. Another reason may be because when I hear myself during the episode, I hear green, naive, unpolished, high self-critic. And one more reason could be because I want to hold this person close. They're a mentor and colleague, but also a dear friend and chosen family. Maida has been quintessential for shaping dance and performing arts in Washington, D.C. as choreographer and performer with a career that spans over 40 years with her company, Maida Withers Dance Construction Company, including international performances and residencies and groundbreaking collaborations with artists and scientists. I met Maida in D.C., and shortly after joined the master's program in dance. She co-created at George Washington University first in 1965. Maida was offered tenure at George Washington University at 24 years old. For a woman teaching in the field of dance in the 1960s to be offered university tenure at 24 years of age is a testament to how remarkable she is. I was working through so much of my own stuff at the time during this program at GW. All the doubts, fears, and other shadowy shit was amplified times 10 as I was developing as a solo performer. The person that championed me and helped me through it all was Maida. And maybe the reason I waited so long to share this episode is because I wanted to really encapsulate how I think of Maida. Brilliant, warm, kind, funny, wonderfully unconventional, and explicitly original. You can view more about Maida Withers' dance construction company, including archival documentation over the past four-plus decades at MaidaDance.com. That's M-A-I-D-A-D-A-N-C-E dot com. And I'll stick that in the show notes too so you can find it. Here is my long overdue chat with Maida. Hello. Hi, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Do you like my calming um, slate blue background? Your bricks and everything. I used to have such a beautiful background. And then, you know, my daughter decided to work for Hulu. So she, we dismantled my office, gave her my desk, moved me over on the other desk. And now I'm in front of two windows. And I just, my whole life has been thrown up in the air by disorganizing my office. Yeah. But that's the life. That's the life of COVID, right? Yeah. Have you had a vaccine yet? No, I am not involved. Um, in any place or not working for any organization that I would be, I would get a vaccine now. I I finally, we finally uh, worked and worked and worked for about five days and got an invitation. 
And then I was, once I got the invitation, I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to take this. Oh. <laughs> but we're that? taking it. My husband's taking it tomorrow. I'm taking it Saturday morning. Okay. So hopefully. Do you have, you don't want to take it because you. I just am skeptical of all of it. Right. You know, you just, we don't even know. I've never had a flu shot. You know, that's. So, I just got a flu shot for the first time in, I can't even remember when the last time I got a flu shot was, but I got it um, this year uh-huh. because everyone everyone else was doing it. So I was I was going to be a sheep and I was going to do it too because everyone was saying you should do it. We need this. <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> you take the pill, don't ask questions. <laughs> fall in line, Mr. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, it's weird, isn't it? But whatever. My son in Russia is completely skeptical. The Russian vaccine apparently is a decent vaccine, but mm-hmm. he hasn't had it. But uh, he has, they have a thing uh, of things that the doctors, you know, doctors come to your home in Russia. You don't have to always go to the hospital. They come mm-hmm. to you. And so they they get allow you to go to the pharmacy and get these things, an antidote. And there's they, so there are three things that he's taken that they say this is a preventive. No, it's and not. It, yeah, is it? It's not the same for the pharmaceutical industry as we have here. Like it's not Pfizer yeah. or Moderna. It's it's different. They have their own vaccine, right? Okay. And they have their own these things that they take, and it does include a simple thing like an aspirin, and uh-huh. but um, there's an antibiotic that everybody takes. So I don't know. He hasn't had it. And uh, nobody in, in my immediate family has had it. But my sister had it. And she was only sick for 24 hours. And that was mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except that she lost her memory. No. <laughs> oh, no, no. Those are the th- but. <laughs> but just for, did she lose her she memory? Just... remember whether she was sick or not. No. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if you just lost your memory for 24 hours, it's <laughs> better than so just losing your memory entirely. <laughs> She'd say, <laughs> so you're in a building on campus, right? No, I'm not on campus. Um, I haven't yeah. been um, on um, campus since March of last year year uh-huh. yeah i haven't been back we've been virtual since march of last year yeah. since the pandemic began and campus is a good 45 50 minute drive for me oh, yeah. so there's no reason i just go up there and oh, no, no, hang about no. so no i'm I gonna went down to gw today to, to uh, remove the brand new imac um so that i could use it because there's some things that i don't have enough space for unless i use an external hard drive and it's just faster when i'm not wanting to keep it mm. so i went down there to to remove it and it's chained <laughs> your hard drive is chained the hard drive is chained the whole machine is chained to the desk oh well, nobody would steal it so i said i couldn't get it off so <laughs> i there's a there was an orange key there that it was supposed to go in and turn it and get you i couldn't get it to work so I went in to steal it. I had permission to steal it, but then when I, <laughs> then I couldn't take it, so I wrote back. I wrote them and said, "Well, thank you, but no, thank you." Wait but a minute. So they had it. it was chained, but there was a key chained. next to it. There, well, there was a a, a a second metal, just like the one that was holding uh. this one, and it had two keys on it. So I tried those two keys, and it wouldn't open okay. it. So who knows who has that key? Oh, nobody will right. know if they have it. 
So I'm sure it's that 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 additional one that's there, that key that I couldn't get it to work. Right. Well, I just said no, no, no. I feel like you- this has been a situation before when I've been um, in the in the GW Department of Theater and yeah. Dance that there's a key. There's one key for every Probably. single door. <laughs> so when you need to get into one door, you have to track down just the right key to get into that oh, door. Key. And only like one or two people have that key. <laughs> Oh, the very, very old locks they're trying to get rid of because they are just a nightmare. Mm. And one of them is the office into the Building J office. That's an old lock. And nobody, but nobody, they uh, they keep sending another person, another person. And then we right. finally just break in. We just break in the door. <laughs> how is how is Building J? So Building they're, J. Uh, supposedly remodeling it some uh, before mm-hmm. uh, August, but. You know, the campus is just locked down. I don't think that'll ever be repaired by August. But I don't think GW will be face-to-face in August. They're very, very, they're they're ruled by the D.C. government. So whatever Bowser says the rule is for D.C., GW is that rule. So they could petition, but they're not going to, I'm sure, to take legal responsibility. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm, I've asked for sabbatical, mm-hmm. so hopefully I'll be on sabbatical leave. But if I'm not, then it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But I don't think we're going to be in classrooms again. But hopefully, Building J will be repaired sometime by next year. Mm-hmm. I've I was talking to a friend of mine who is, um, uh, I guess he's a da- I guess lecturer or adjunct of dance at SUNY Purchase. Um, and he was telling me how he's been working with the students virtually, sort of giving them cues, having them make things. Um, and then I guess they'll either video them, they'll document them in some way and then present them. I'm wondering how how that's sort of been going for you with the students. Well, we just, I just bought, I just took the, uh, the, the little problem by the tail. Mm-hmm. And I got uh, the university to support me having uh, two filmmakers in the course with 14 people and we just started day one this is you know this Mm. is hello this is google this is how you here's a filmic download it on your phone this is how you shoot this is how you in first session here's 15 exercises Mm. on the camera and you post onto google next session next two sessions we're on a Premiere Pro. You take your data out of Google. You move it over here, everybody, mm-hmm. because there were three of us. And then they have a thing called, um, it's a studio. Uh, that It's a new idea at the library. And they have two people there that you can make appointments with for editing and after effects and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we just taught people how to do it. And we, yeah. uh, their dancers were trained in how to use the camera. We gave everybody tripods, and uh, the the university paid for down and downloading filmic and pay paid for the tripods that hold the phone, mm-hmm. and then they just did it. Uh, you right. should see the films; they're very respectable. So we just uh, did it, and they had private counseling anytime they needed it, and we put it on, and we had 190 people attend the showing. There were 14 films shown, film shorts. And, uh, we and had that was virtual? We had people stay to the talk back. So this semester, we're down to 11. 
and we don't have the same stamina that we had last semester. Last semester, everybody was gung-ho. They're going to do it. They were hot to trot. And the, this semester, several of them are repeating the class, but they all wanted to do solos instead of th- dances with three to five people. And so uh, we're in it again. So I think we were very successful, mm-hmm. totally successful. Well, technology is here to stay. So how you exactly. how you relate to it is know, up to the you. Thing about it, John, is that a lot of the uh, the other majors now are requiring video editing, and one of our students mm-hmm. last semester who's politically active in Georgia and all that mess and everything, she got a job because she could video edit. And they said, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. we're wanting to use more video editing and blah blah blah." And she said, well, I, here's my video. This is what I just made. Mm-hmm. It was a four-minute video. And so they said, you're on. So I think it's going to be a given to this generation. Mm-hmm. Do you remember where we met? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I um, first came into your presence at, maybe it was Washington Performing Arts. Was it Washington Performing Arts Society? Or what was the Performing Arts Society? Um that through dance events and would host you and the Maida Withers Dance Construction Company. It was probably Washington Performing Arts Society, maybe. Washington Performing Arts Society, that's right. They're now WPA. They draw the society, but they're still right. existent. They don't do dance anymore. It's all music, all music. Right. There's the other organization, which uh, I was on the founding board for, the Washington Project for the Arts. And that's the, they do more visual arts and a little bit of dance. And, but they've been the longest-lived interdisciplinary organization probably right. in the United States. But I think this was a... Doug this... Wheeler and the Washington Performing Arts Society, they do Lisner and Kennedy Center and other oh, things. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't that one. It was the first one that I believe that Lisa used to had uh-huh. um and there was a, it was a dance performance and you had um maybe anthony and maybe giselle in some type of pixelated nude leotard uh, this is a, that was an open that was a celebration for the washington project for the arts right okay yeah and that that was a wonderful uh uh it's a friend um kane is the gentleman's name from Boston uh-huh. that was the partner on that. He now lives in California, but his he does a lot of very big high-tech projects, uh, like, for example, in uh, Massachusetts on the major freeways. He had some large billboards that had projection of nature and trees. So among all the trees on the side of the road was a huge billboard with trees projected mm-hmm. on it. And he's always doing great things like that. So Tanya introduced me to him. And I said, well, I have this opening. Do you want to do something? Mm-hmm. And then we, we got talking, and I asked him what was he doing, what were his students doing, because mm-hmm. he was a professor. And he said, well, we've got a student from China that's doing a crazy project of uh, taking a film of a, a person's body front and back, sending that film to China to then uh, put that on uh, a a suit, a bodysuit mm-hmm. that is flesh colored. And so uh, basically we, he said that's what she was doing. So we asked them if they would uh, participate in China in sending us these suits. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were sent photographs of bodies, but not our bodies. They were photographs of bodies of people in Boston. 
And then in China, they put the front and back of these people on the suit in the measurements of uh, Anthony and Giselle. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, they put on somebody else's body, and it was also the face mm-hmm. and the yeah, body. Yeah, I do and, remember yeah. the face being covered. I thought it's it was interesting to me because it looked um, it looked like it was a bit like a comment on censorship because of the pixelation of the bodies. Like you yeah. couldn't couldn't and quite the see yeah. suits. They could have been better for sure, but uh, it was still extremely effective. And as with many things like that. The, this very liberal crowd in the Washington Project for the Arts, because it is. They support artists. They get grants for artists and all kinds of support work. And this was their new home up on 7th Street or 7th. Mm-hmm. I think it's 7th. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but uh, to a certain extent, it was curious how the audience ignored us. The audience just didn't, they just acted like we weren't there. And I thought that taught me a lot about whenever you're in a situation like that, live interacting, you might be better off to actually do a performance to sort of introduce everybody to why you're there like that, Mm. what you do when you do what you do. And I think we could have been, it was very hilarious, like just going up and standing and participating in mm-hmm. a conversation. We wore hats, as you know, sometimes, and they, mm-hmm. uh, coats and other things. Felicia did it, and Giselle and Anthony. And so, uh, but uh, I thought it was effective. And it's, the photographs are beautiful. They're beautiful. How did it feel to be ignored in the space? Or why do you think people were ignoring the performers. Well, I think mostly uh, situations like that are social. People come there to promote themselves. Right. And they're there to promote, uh, you know, what are they doing? What are they needing to do? And so forth. And so uh, that's why performance is off, oftentimes in, uh, unless it's an intended celebration with announced performances and all of that, mm-hmm. I think quite often those parties are for where people promote themselves and -hmm. they promote their relationship to the city and so forth. So, and I, we did several really great things. We took the one wall and just did these uh, um, funny relationships with three people Mm -hmm. and uh, just against that wall. And then the audience wasn't really involved in that, that like if four people would be talking and one of us would just go over and stand and participate in a conversation in silence, of course. And so, but for the most part, nobody ever said, Oh, you look great. What's your name? What are you doing here? We went across the street where that whole block is unfinished, large, unfinished buildings. Mm-hmm. And we started shooting photographs of these three figures in front of the brick building and in the stairway and then in the arches and so forth. And then the audience across the street, which was the WPA pro- party, they became somewhat interested in what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. So we got a sort of energy of... Uh, something going across the street and that seemed then to be safe and washington you know is conservative town right is there a lot of i mean historically has there been like a lot of site performance happening in washington dc there's a lot of what has there been a lot of site performance happening in washington dc like are people sort of um expecting that or when they when they're in Um, when they encounter something like what you were doing, Uh they kind of get thrown for a loop because they're not 
used to seeing a I site think, performance. Well, you know, uh, in the 70s, I introduced site work in Washington, D.C., and we did it. We did everything. I did a huge event on the Theodore Roosevelt Island, where Theodore Roosevelt, you know, he's for uh, war, and mm. he has his gun, and he has his nature. And uh, we had, um, I think there were 17 musicians in the moat in that location, and then we had a a man and a woman from California. She was pregnant with their child, and they were they came they lived in nature on that island. And then the there were seventeen dancers in red that were um, uh, lining up and doing things in front of the huge statues there, uh, really cued by the airlines leaving National Airport. So every two minutes on Sunday. There was another airplane coming and going. Mm -hmm. So that performance was created for 17 people cued from the airplanes. Mm -hmm. So when that airplane crossed, they shifted their formations and so forth. We had stilt walkers in that presentation, etc. We made one mistake because at that time, there was a very small parking lot. And we had it became a huge event in the city. And people couldn't get across the moat because they had to drive in the parking lot to get to the island. And mm-hmm. so it, we we dragged that performance out. But that was maybe one of our most early. And I think that was 76. Mm-hmm. And then the other big, uh, big that got a huge coverage in the Washington Post was the White Mansions work of us uh, in the cemetery, the second oldest cemetery in Washington, D.C., right behind Georgetown University, that wonderful with all those huge, wonderful, you know, everything in the cemetery is so beautiful. And the, and we hung stretched white fabric between the trees, and we had a group of students and children that supposedly lived in the cemetery. And then there were a group of six of us with the dance construction company that had huge, long white fabric that became a wedding scene and became a table scene for uh, a celebration. Uh, and it was as if we were dead. But we lived in the cemetery. And by dusk, by the time that event finished, we got into a gold Rolls Royce, took off out of the Mm. cemetery, left the audience there. And so uh, I know I have done a lot of really groundbreaking site events like that in Washington, D.C. But, you know, Washington is a a somewhat stuffy town. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the young people are not. There's a huge number of young single people there, and they t- tend to have a different life than the, uh, let's say, the the political, everybody that has a political job or political work in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. But um, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I think that it was like we were not the event. The event was the celebration of, I think it was the 40th anniversary of the Washington Project for the Arts. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think it was the the extremeness of these costumes and the characters that we were mm-hmm. that was like, what are you going to do to say to somebody that has fabric over their face, but they're all pixelated and have lipstick and mm-hmm. everything else? But we did a big event once at uh, the art at American University Katzen Art Center. Mm-hmm. And that was a celebration of uh, local artists, and there was a lot of wonderful stuff going there. But um, uh, remember uh, Svetlana Katsabova? 
Yes. She's the, yeah, beautiful dancer. And she and Anthony were the entire evening on three levels of that place, just dressing and undressing, never going naked, always having, you know, the underwear and the bra and so forth. But just they would like be on a where you had to cross a bridge to get into an exhibition. Mm -hmm. You had to pass between this couple that was dancing and dressing and undressing. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, the, the side event it was just, uh, it was a bigger situation with more people and a, a more liberal crowd, I guess I would say, um, collectors and, and so forth. So I think in Washington, D.C., it, it would be totally dependent on who was there. Mm -hmm. Now, when I did the big event on the plaza by National Theater, and it was during the day, and uh, we rehearsed every day there for three weeks from nine to 12 in the morning in the summer. Mm -hmm. And then we designated a day as the performance day. And, but people uh, used that plaza. The baby strollers came through, the bicyclists came through, and we were catching the wind. So the wind every day changed direction and so forth. But uh, in that situation, we brought an audience. So we had 50 people there to see our performance. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, in a side event is one of the maybe differences where you're advertised as the event and then people come to see that or not, or they know you're there because there's a promotional uh, aspect there. But uh, that plaza, I did a huge big event for the summer music that is always done in Washington, D.C. in the summer. And we were allowed in the moat. So mm -hmm. there was a whole thing of balloons holding us in the water moat. Mm -hmm. And then all the Capitol buildings in the background of that diagonal. So I know that I've done I've done every almost every monument, every space, even illegally getting on the Iwo Jima mm -hmm. monument, the Marine monument. Mm -hmm. We got permission to be at the monument, but not on it. But we got on it for 10 minutes before the police came and said, you've got I knew the head, the policeman that came. He goes mm -hmm. to my church. <laughs> And he said, I'll give you five minutes to get off and get on out of here. Because people were calling on Route 50. There's desecration going on of the Marines. What going. year was that? When was that? Oh, that was like, uh, I think that was like 87 or something. Yeah. Where do you get your provocative side from? Like, where do you, where, where does that come from? Well, uh, you know, we were doing, like my generation, we're sort of introducing these ideas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was by nature provocative because it had never happened before. And so anything we did was provocative. And like there was a sculpture piece out by the Kennedy Center that was a, like a large letter Z, black. And we just stayed, stood on that thing for two hours. And it was like, oh, this is the Kennedy Center. What are you doing on that sculpture? Well, I'm sure the, the sculptor would have been thrilled with us being there. Mm -hmm. It was very heavy. It was very strong. But it's like that. It, I think site work was provocative for the most part there. But I will say, John, that the early company, the founders of the company, mm -hmm. two of them were uh, had their master's degree in visual art and mm -hmm. a master's and this degree is, in this dance. Is, this is your company. They, this were, is... they were a visually art. They, this is your they, company, right? The Meta right. Weathers Dance Construction they, Company. They were the founders of that company, John Bailey and uh, Brooke Andrews and uh, three women. But um, basically, 
I think we were provocative. We had the first uh, Washington, D.C., I, I don't know what you call him. He was, uh, he was a poet. He was a poet. He was very, very gay. He was blatantly gay. And he, uh, we, Jason uh, Gaver, and he did rap. And he, before rap was rap, mm-hmm. he was doing that, you know, uh, with his little um, tambourine and a little whistle and his poetry and his dancing and chanting and chanting. Mm-hmm. And we did two events with him and it, his work was provocative. It mm-hmm. was religious, taking on religion or just, I mean, I did a thing where he basically was, I, I don't know whether, well, you can edit this out, <laughs> uh, where he was in his uh, white you know, shorts, linen shorts, and saying, I love my daddy. My daddy, he loves me. I love my daddy. And it was obviously he was raped by his father. Mm. And here I am on stage with a huge big pink bow on my neck and huge pink bow on my tap shoes. And I'm tapping away like I'm entertaining the whole world with my tap shoes. And he's telling, continuing to tell the story of his relationship with his father. And so um, I guess I was a little innocent because I, I wasn't sure how many people would get it, you know, mm-hmm. the, what was happening in that moment. But um, we did, I mean popular songs and whatever. So I think that my generation coming as we did to sort of make up these ideas, um, we were developing our own following. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Kriegsman, you know, the critic for the Washington Post said, well, you know, don't ever miss anything Meta does because what you saw last time won't be the next thing. And I think we were just plummeting forward. We do. We did an event about every six weeks, the mm. first two years of the company in 1975, 74, 75. And we, just, we rehearsed three nights a week, and we just made up scores, and we'd go occupy a site and create a, a score before we got there, and then we'd just do it. And uh, because we were all sort of improvisers, mm-hmm. and we... I mean, it, it uh, it's like uh, nothing that happens now in that in that way. The new groundbreakers and the new, you know, revolters are they, they don't have to rely on mm-hmm. audience interaction or violation of sight or um, there are a lot of other different things going on now. People's objectives with their art form are are different, so. But I do, I do think we were controversial, and I do think we were quite innocent in our controversy. Wait, what brought you to Washington D.C.? Because okay. I remember you were you you were you were living in Utah, right? Or you you were from originally? From uh, I was Utah. born and raised in Utah right. on the southern uh, by Arizona for the north rim of the Grand Canyon. My family uh, actually built uh, the Kaibab Lodge in the Kaibab Forest. It was ten miles from the a huge, you know, the United, mm-hmm. the Pacific Railway uh, Lodge there on the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. So my father and him, his father had this innocent idea of people coming. It was the very beginning of the discovery of the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. 
And everybody, including the president of the United States, was going to come in their Model T Ford and go to the Grand Canyon and so forth. And then, of course, uh, there was the financial disaster. The stock market, Mm -hmm. bingo, died. So my parents had to sell after five years of, of that. And then from that being there in that mostly natural, very big advocates of uh, protection of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, my family moved into central Utah, and uh, so our lives changed a lot from leaving where we were basically in the most beautiful place on the earth with red buttes and sky every night, whatever. You could see every star, no industry, nothing. Mm -hmm. And so my early childhood was very important and steeped in the love of the beauty of this kind of setting. And we were quite ignorant at that time of the indigenous role of the Native Americans, not my father, but the family, I guess I would say, because they were not there and they were no longer there. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that's inspired a lot of my work on out in Utah, where six years I worked on earth sites in there to make that work. But when I left Utah, I had uh, just received my master's degree from the University of Utah, and I had taught one year in Idaho. And so at that point in time, dance was just beginning its uh, role, its history of dance in the university. And this was um, that was that was in the nineteen six that was nineteen sixty okay nineteen uh, yeah and um, so basically I was that first generation to be offered jobs and when I graduated from the University of Utah there were five jobs available so I took the Purdue University job because my husband mm-hmm. needed to go back to school in economics. So we went to the Midwest and we stayed there three years and then moved to Washington, D.C., where I then took a job at Howard University. So I, didn't I was know teaching. You. I didn't know you were ever at Howard University. Yeah. Oh, one wow. year. I taught it one year. Then I got pregnant with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the Kennedy, you know, that was all Martin Luther King and my innocent Western, I mean, I, I didn't know black people because that wasn't in Kanab. Uh, well, mm-hmm. you know, a, a little different in northern Utah, but even at that time, very little integration. And so um, I it was fascinating. I was fascinated. I marched with them for the, uh, you know, for Martin Luther King and for John F. Oh, Kennedy and wow. so forth. And uh, so I, I, I learned a lot. And because I had my parents... Um, had uh, participated in a program of indigenous uh, children being able to come into a home and, and go to school and so forth. So I had an indigenous sister for four years, my last four years of high school. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I was very thrilled to be at Howard. Mm-hmm. It was complicated. Uh, it was complicated. And then did that you... Was time. That was a really tough time. Right. And then from Howard, did you go? Howard, I took a year off uh, because I was pregnant, and mm-hmm. I had a, I gave birth to my first child, Kristen. And um, yes, Kristen and I are Facebook friends. No, great. She's here, you know, working for Hulu out of my house. Oh, uh, Kristen is in Washington. 
Yeah, she moved. She moved here with COVID for two months, and then of course Los Angeles just right, went into yeah. crazy, and we said, "No, you're not going home. You're staying here." So she then said, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll get a job." And so she has a job at Hulu, and she's working out of my living room. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so this is good. We love having her here. But anyway, then from there, my friend Kathy Mason was teaching at George Washington University. And she decided to take a Fulbright. And uh, we'd been dancing together in a company called the Contemporary Dance Company of Washington, D.C. Naima Prevo, mm-hmm. myself, and some other beautiful dancers, Jan Van Dyke. And uh, basically, uh, when, the, um, when the time she was to come back and take over her job, she decided to go to Maryland and work toward a Ph.D. in... Um, special education and uh, the earliest research um, in some specific uh, problems. But so I was asked to stay there again. And then I thought she was coming back. So, and, you know, I didn't anticipate being a professor mm-hmm. because I had this idea that I was going to New York City or someplace and I was going to have a company and I was going to dance because I wanted to dance. It, I really wanted to dance, maybe more than make work. And I was the wrong body for a lot of companies. Now we have a lot of diverse bodies, but you know, I'm five foot seven. I've got huge long arms. I have a bony body and, um, and I didn't really like dancing anybody else's material either. Mm-hmm. I had ideas about my Western attitude toward the body was very open and free. And I wasn't an Easterner by my brain <laughs> and mm-hmm. my physical, my what I loved. But in any event, um, I went in to uh, resign, say, I not don't give me a contract next year. Yeah, this is my last year. And um, the woman said, oh, I have something to talk to you about. Should I go first or should you? And I said, well, why don't you go first? And they offered me tenure. Mm-hmm. And you just don't get tenure, especially in the field of dance. Mm-hmm. For me to be a young person, I was like 24 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Somebody to be offering me tenure. <laughs> it's like, wow. And so then she said, well, and, and I said, oh, my. And she said, well, think about that. And I said, okay. And she said, well, what did you want to talk about? And I said, well, I think I have to think about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I accepted the tenure position. And then that was the next year that Elizabeth Bertner and I uh, established the first MA, Master of Arts at GW, 1965. Mm-hmm. And the next year we did the Bachelor of Arts degree. So that that was sort of, I was able to participate in establishing those programs and working, you know, in, in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but that's how I got to Washington and that's how I stayed in Washington, but I had gone actually from uh, Salt from Salt Lake City to Purdue University. Mm-hmm. There, my group of people that were graduating from the university were offered all these jobs: Reed College, University of Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, uh, and uh, there were five jobs that I was applying for. And then I decided to take the job at Purdue because my husband was in the economics. And we thought, well, that'll get us closer to the East Coast, and that will also get him into a fine economics program. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so we, we were there for three years while he did his undergraduate degree. And then I took the job at Howard from there. So you've, I mean, you really did create the sort of the Bachelor of Arts program at at George Washington University. Yeah, master's first and then the bachelor's. And was that, um, was it combined theater and dance or was it just, was it dance? Were those, were those two things separated? Actually, uh, we were not with theater. Uh, okay. The, yeah. We were in the school, when dance was established at uh, GW, the first dance teacher taught in 1939. And she came into the women's physical education department. And she was teaching dance through women's physical education. And then uh, that developed into not women's physical education and men's physical education, but the women and men joined together to form a department of physical education. And dance was actually part of that program. But when we put the degree on the books, we went to the dean of the school of education and asked if uh, it was possible that we could establish a degree in dance in the School of Education, Department of Education. And he said, if we put it on the books in the summer, it's maybe possible. Mm-hmm. So without any approval of any faculty or anything, mm-hmm. the generous dean put us on the books for that a degree during the summer when no one was there to rebel. Mm-hmm. And we advertised and got students starting to come. And that was a very big time. Uh, in the 19, you know, that period of time, because the big movement toward running, walking, jogging, mm-hmm. all of that physical emphasis started right then. And we we had a, sometimes 45 people in the major program in the Master of Arts in Education because they were going to go out and establish gym programs of, for exercise. Mm-hmm. And then that has now become a very refined industry. But it was not to begin with. It was not quite that sophisticated. But all of our students that were graduating were actually teaching dance in those situations, mm. making how have, money. How have yeah. um, generations of students changed since you started at GW? I'm curious. <laughs> well, one of the things about GW, and people say to me, why have you stayed at GW? Because actually, I've... I love teaching, and teaching is easy for me, and it's natural for me. And I come from a a history of family educators, so that was always a big value in my family. But my heart was I could do that and make work, and I could do that and perform. Mm -hmm. And it was later this thing happened where dancers became performers, where performers became professors, I mean. And that was another generation. That was what UCLA did. That's what Bennington, you know, Bennington did what GW did. They did it early on. Mm -hmm. But then it became sort of, oh, well, we're going to be professionals into the degree programs in the university. And that was a second generation of, but my generation, you were sort of looked like, well, if you're a professor in the university, how could we take you seriously as an artist? Mm -hmm. How could that possibly be true? And when the NEA got into place in the 19, well, the legislation was 1968, I believe, but by the time the money came, Mm -hmm. it was early 70s. But then it was like, well, you have a full-time job. Why would we fund you? Look at all these people that need $5,000 to make a, a, a work. 
And at that time, there were individual fellowships at NEA. But it was always like, oh, well, Maida, you you have a place to rehearse. You have, uh, but I was never in a resident company at GW. Mm-hmm. I was just, uh, I negotiated everything. And uh, and the negotiations involved lots of different relationships. Right. And so, um, but uh, I will say it allowed me to have a lot of influence in Washington, D.C., and it allowed me to uh, have a following, too. And um, But what I started to say was the kind of person like you that comes to GW, they're very interesting people. <laughs> and they, they are very interesting to teach. And I've always said, oh, I stay at GW because I like the students. Mm-hmm. And they're up for the arts. They're, I mean, what I did today in my improv class, I don't know if I could do it every place, <laughs> but I could do it at GW because mm-hmm. we were dealing with today with text, voice, and movement. And I was introduced to Alex Calgero, the philosophy professor, poet, sonosphere that I've collaborated with, and I was had you know him them watching his documentary of him all this outrageous 1960 political poetry and his amazing performance and so forth. And I said, okay, we're, you watch that, and now we're going to deal with that. We're going to come. We're going to make improvisation based on Alex's uh, poetry and his documentary, mm-hmm. and we're going to improvise while he's doing this outrageous political, you know, his political, passionate, keenly intellectual, quite often vulgar. Um, so... And you were getting it's, your dancers to use their voice. They're accustomed. They're accustomed to poetry. They're accustomed to a little offbeat, and it's okay. They're families. They come from families that have said, "Oh yeah, yeah, so okay, so so." So um, I've always liked this the students at GW, and of course, life is changing now, and whether or not we'll we'll have students in school anymore, where we're right. actually face to face with people. Maybe some courses, yes, mm-hmm. but some courses are better taught online. You want to have, like in the trends and performance art class, and I want to deal, let's say, with five revolutionary artists on that have to do with migration. And I can have them on my computer, five of their five artists and their videos mm-hmm. of the work they're making today starting in 2000, the migrations that have happened, pluck, you click on it, it comes up. They're watching it for three minutes. Pluck on the next one. You can have them go in and do research on an artist on refugees, a camp on, and, you know, mm-hmm. artists <laughs> that are working in camps, making work with refugees in Syria and mm-hmm. whatever. And they can go on and dig that stuff up and make a report in the class and have the whole class performing in their thumbnails, mm-hmm. a script that they got from a refugee artist, right? And so otherwise, we'd be sitting in the classroom, we'd turn on the projector, the thing would roll, we'd see the, the projector, turn off the projection, turn off the computer, get the lights back on, go back in front of the class, have a class, you know, yeah. whatever. So yeah. I, there's some parts of learning that I think are so perfect for the computer and other parts that are killed. Hi, friend. It's me. 
dropping into the sponsorship slot to let you know that I Miss You has a Patreon subscriber page and I would love your support. I'm keeping it simple. There's a monthly subscriber choice of $5 and $10. For both, you'll have access to a patrons-only Facebook group for connecting with myself, fans of the show, and maybe a guest or two. Also, occasional drops of bonus content. For $10, I'm adding this super sweet pink and white enamel pin that says, Hi friend. Wear it to the grocery store, to the gym, to your COVID vaccination, or anywhere else where cool kids are wearing pins these days. Who knows, maybe you'll meet a new friend. Your Patreon coin goes to support the upkeep of the show, which includes studio rental, gas to get to the studio, website and recording platform fees, dog treats. If committing to a monthly fee seems a little out of reach at the moment and you'd still like to support the show, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal at our website, imissyoupodcast.com. Now, back to the convo. I think you would have loved this um, performance that I did virtually that I was invited to do um, based on a Pauline Oliveras script. Um, It was called Full Pink Moon. And we um, got on Zoom and there were artists from all over the world at Uh the same time. And I believe there were maybe around 250 of us all at one time on Zoom doing an opera. Oh. Um, and there were there was a we would get a we got a list of cues and it went it went on for seven hours. So oh. um, a timed sort of cues like something like a loud noise happens or or um, 30, 30 <laughs> minutes of sustained howling at the moon. So like the, we'd get these cues and then people would interpret them and listen in to sort of what else is happening among all of these people sort of Amazing. coming on a Zoom from all the world. And I, I think I probably lasted about six hours of it. And then I had to kind of, I needed to kind of go because it was quite late here. Yeah. But it was, it was, there were people moving. Such a giant woman. Uh, I always said that she and John Cage were such, uh, they were kindred spirits. Mm -hmm. Only she was the woman and he was the man. And, she incredible. We did uh, several. She was part of uh, Marilyn Woods' uh, uh, organization, a celebration art. And like, if you were going to have a big opening of a bank, you could uh, hire the celebration artists to come project on the building, mm-hmm. bring entertainers. The guy from Italy that would be on fire, and he'd mm-hmm. dash through the crowd and so forth. And uh, it's it, Pauline. Uh, Oliveris is active in that organization, and that's where I met her. Mm-hmm. And we were in uh, uh, in um, New Mexico on an Aurora, uh, and her conch shells and her performances, mm-hmm. brilliant, incredible person. I went to New York in a rainstorm, and it rained the entire time from Virginia to New York City, Brooklyn Academy of Music, to see her piece, The Collaboration with Africa. Mm-hmm. And I saw the performance. We kissed cheek to cheek, and I said goodbye. And I drove home in a rainstorm until <laughs> three in the morning. But yeah, she's a, a one of a kind, brilliant artist. Yeah. How do you think the pandemic is sort of reshaping the field of dance? There have been many, many things in dance that needed to be uh, laid to rest. And 
I think that this may be the moment where some of those things will, by nature, not regroup or reorganize to uh, take their power again. And um, I think we were definitely, because of the um, all of the media systems anyway, putting every man uh, capable of making and presenting performance and sharing in performances that they couldn't ever see if they weren't in Italy or if they didn't have the money to go to the Brooklyn Academy of Music or whatever. So I think that uh, the society has changed. And I think consequently the arts will change with it. And so whatever strategies we had before, it's not that they weren't good and it's not that they aren't good, but we need another, uh, we, we need to allow uh, many different cultures in, our, in an American society to be infused and embraced in the arts that we are celebrating in this country for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was going on before the pandemic. The media was changing uh, the field anyway, uh, the field of dance and all of the arts. And so we have a lot of huge museums, and I'm praying that dance will become a member of those museums, not on a once-in-three-months occasion, but that the visual arts will embrace the performing arts to happen in the same place for the same reasons and to celebrate mm-hmm. each other through each other. And so I think there are lots of things that have happened like all of those big museums being built, and someone has to be in them. Somebody has to attract audiences. And so all the interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary works are going to, I hope, come alive in the museum uh, society and um, and other things. And I, I do think that the uh, what we had when the modern uh, sort of departed from the ballet and we lost that sort of language that had been so beautifully um, disciplined, taught, uh, enacted, and beautiful works. And then the modern dance said, well, but we, we don't look like that. We don't dance like that. We, we have other visions of what our bodies can do and so forth. And that was a, a moment of changing the culture. And not giving up anything, but changing and adding new things to the culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I think that the postmodernism, which is my generation, if we haven't made changes to be other than the postmodern choreographers, so to speak, <laughs> dancing postmodern style, um, that that's the generational thing, and I think we're on to something else now. Yeah, what is that? That what is that movement now? Well, I think uh, I did an interesting thing. I don't know if I should tell you this because it may take too long and it may sound bad. But in the trends and performance art class, generally speaking, I do the whole background of uh, uh, the the foundation of all the isms in Russia and Italy and Mm -hmm. Germany and so forth, that then because of the First and Second World War, a lot of those artists immigrated to the United States and we had Black Mountain College and we had uh, the infusion into galleries of many artists from Europe that then became Americans and presenting their work in America. And uh, I think... uh, 
I decided this year when I was doing the foundation of performance art in America that maybe I had denied looking at what was actually really happening in America. Well, we're looking at what was Europeans were doing in America and what Americans learned to do from Europeans in America. And the, this sort of cross-pollination of Americans going to Europe, Europeans coming to America. We had a whole society of, you know, white people dancing with blackface. Mm -hmm. We had all these fantastic entertainment centers of show dancers and uh, strippers and other things that were coming up through our society. And I, I thought, well, let's look back in the 1600s when we were looking at slavery in America Let's see what was happening in, you know, in the art that we've sort of always kept shadowed in America. And it was fascinating sort of seeing how the whites, you know, took the black culture and they were the entertainers. And if you were black, you couldn't get a, a contract mm -hmm. to be in the circuit of entertainment in the United States. And uh, so anyway, I and the first gay man that was black and his partner in Maryland, and looking at, well, let's maybe there's another story about the evolution of performance art in America. And I think that text hasn't been written, or at least I haven't read it. Mm -hmm. But I think, that, uh, I think that there's a lot been going on that was outside of the stream of the modernism to postmodernism to so forth, which have the sort of European roots, And um, I think we have a, so much broader view of ourselves now than, um, than European perspective. I mean, I love postmodernism. I was part of that movement. I am still part of that movement. And partly because I got so engaged with technology, it sort of pressed me into places maybe that not everybody in postmodern theory and so forth indulged. But uh, I don't, I, I'm really excited to see what it's going to be. And I know that when the pandemic happened and I thought, well, this is the perfect time to do a performance made of what are you going to do? And so I tried to figure out what can I do because I'm quarantined in my house mm -hmm. with a family that can't have people coming in to run technology, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I've done four performances since COVID. And um, I think it's a, it's a perfect time when I did uh, Rainforest Awakens and um, one of the dancers from the laser dance, which is happening, um, the laser dance, right? Oh my goodness. That's 50 years old now, 55. And um, one of the brilliant dancers in that and another of the brilliant dancers had a meeting with each other after my performance in my living room Mm -hmm. they got together and they were in different countries mm -hmm. chatting with each other and excited clapping and, oh, what have you been doing? And So suddenly, you know, I'm performing in my living room. We did a, that same performance. We repeated it for a large technology conference in Sao Paulo, no, Santa Maria, Brazil, and it was broadcast internationally. And uh, it was like, how could I ever imagine that I'd be dancing in my living room a piece about the 
with uh, gorgeous 3D cyber worlds of an imagined uh, the rainforest, the mm. dolph- pink dolphins in the river and worms in the underworld of the trees mm. and so forth. And then sharing it with my friends all over the world and out of Brazil and et cetera. Uh, Do you think- I, I didn't imagine that five years ago. So we're all going to be fine. Yeah. Do you think that people, um, do you think that young people will be less likely to go to college programs for the arts or pursue the arts without going to college after the pandemic than they would have been before? Well, I know this for sure, that having taught 18 and 19 year olds for 55 years, they love to move. They want to dance. They love to perform. Many of them have been dancing since they were four in this generation. They've been dancing every you know week mm-hmm. until they get to college and they want to keep dancing and whatever. And I know it's a huge factor. The physical, actually dancing, growing, expressing, it's, it's a huge factor. And yes, it's frightening because, you know, as long as we're teaching dance improvisation, one of my students has a three foot by nine foot area. That's a big one. A three foot by nine foot area in their in their house. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, you know somebody else is, you know, fortunately yesterday we danced all day with a pillow to see what having an object that was amenable and you could throw it and you could hit it in the wall, you could whatever, mm-hmm. and that provided an opportunity to dance in the bedroom. So there are some advantages to dancing in your home. You have access to objects and props and. Out, look out the window and other things, but yeah. yes, I think your your concern is right, John. That um, if you're going to dance, you want to. I mean, want to dance. one thing that you imparted to me um, at GW as a grad student was to think outside of the box. So these these sort of traditional templates that performance happens in the theater space or performance happens, you know, in that frame, in that proscenium frame, um, I began to re-examine like, and that, and, and that really shaped how I think about um, making performance now. And why not? I know, and who would have thought? But you know, other than- You did a wonderful performance in the South. That was this uh, installation, mm-hmm. and you, uh, so that was you did it in the South. You, yeah, in the South of in the South of the United States, it was some outdoor piece with. Uh, oh right, yeah. um, that's that's the that's the the falling piece that I did at Outsider Festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, we were we were considered in undergrad in our theater program. We were considered to be doing experimental theater, but the experimental theater meant just that there wasn't necessarily a playwright, so we didn't necessarily come with come with the text yeah. that we needed to perform. So sometimes we'd piece things together, um, and then maybe we would we would um, think about performing or using the the stage or the black box in a different way. 
but it was still contained within that theater structure. So even though we weren't necessarily maybe in a proscenium setting where the audience was on one side and the performance was happening on another side in the black box in the room, it still was very structured. Like we weren't, we weren't performing out on the lawn or in the quad and we were performing in the toilets or we weren't, you know, it was, we were still very much so thinking about theater traditionally. Well, I think that that has value. And certainly the great writers and actors and actresses, and uh, there's a place for that Mm -hmm. for sure. And, I, as you know, make these very large-scale works that require a lot of talent and a lot of money and a lot of staging. So I'm still fascinated by all of that. But mm-hmm. uh, the thing about those big works, if you just make one work like that every five years is a lot, well, then what are you going to do? You mm-hmm. either become a repertory company so that you just keep mounting that work on a new body and I could never see any sense in that. Why, would, why wouldn't I just make a new work on a new body instead of put that body in that role mm-hmm. that was maybe not meant for them? Or I could never understand that, you know, if you want to have a company and get funding and get money, you have to have a repertory base. Mm-hmm. So you have a season and you have a, a comeback and people can count on that happening and so forth. And uh, it's, uh, I think that model, the repertory model, uh, has been the saving grace of dance. It has kept people alive. I can do that same performance and take it to Missouri. I can do that same mm-hmm. performance. And uh, now, of course, we have the media. So I'm watching the Kennedy Center on my TV instead of sitting in the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're broadcasting live, I think something today or tomorrow, that nobody's seeing live, but it's being broadcast <laughs> from the Kennedy Center. And they don't so, have an audience actually in there yeah. while they're broadcasting, yeah. So uh, there, there's a lot of new answers. and mm-hmm. But I think that um, it's natural for people in a community together to share art, and to share their life through the arts. And so it is going to be some very small things. It's going to be some larger things. And But I think the idea that um, we don't need to have huge financial investment, we do have to have a huge human artistic investment because that's the way it's made. Mm-hmm. It's a discovery process of finding out what is possible, what is under the surface, what is not so obvious, you know, when you start thinking of an idea, what's not, what becomes clearer that's possible to communicate than what you initially maybe in, in quick, you know, time decided to do. So mm-hmm. I think the artist still has to in, invest a huge amount of time and energy. And that that is also, you know, if it's not a saleable I- item, an object that people can buy and hang or uh, whatever. And we're even yeah. running into that more with it being online. You're expected to offer it free. Yeah, well, I'm I'm wondering, you know, when you when they do stream live performances from big houses, you know, they're not getting that ticket revenue in. No. Maybe the, the Met has been doing it for years, you know, selling the Metropolitan Operas. Right. 
Oh, so yeah. oh yeah, because I I actually had a brief subscription to the Met Opera you could watch online because mm-hmm. I think I wanted to see Akhenaten, the Philip Glass piece. Mm-hmm. So I just quickly I just bought one month just to see that, and then I canceled my subscription to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah. I think we're into a lot of new things, and uh, I had uh, I brought a, a person, a collaborator, with me that I met in Washington, D.C. I put a notice in some arts newspaper. I was looking for a person with a sort of out there view of uh, collaborating. Uh, I was looking for a new collaborator, and he answered. And we met, and I said, well, my... Wait, this is Philip Glass? No, that was uh, Io Okunsiende. He's a person in Washington, D.C. So he's an incredible person. You may know him. He established the uh, uh, the first gallery on H Street when H Street started being revived, right. and uh, Io established the uh, on Fourth uh, Street right there. So when he was like, "Oh, Washington's up by Atlas." No, the Atlas is a dance theater. Yeah, oh, the, right. theater theater. Yeah. No, that's conventional. Okay, he was a visual artist. It was a visual artist, but it's in it's about three blocks from the Atlas. But uh, anyway, he he is a black, fantastic artist. And we did uh, three big projects together. But he is all involved in the ideas of futurism. Mm-hmm. And so his most recent work was an astronaut, where he has an uh, uh, you know the astronaut suit that allows him to communicate and what. And he walks around in a technology world. He's inside of it. He's the astronaut in there. So anyway, I brought him to the university to talk about futurism and uh, mm-hmm. how we get to futurism and, uh, and what that means with technology. Mm-hmm. So we'd been doing a project where I was having a portraits on screen on the, the monitor and then trying to get a machine uh, computer mm-hmm. to take the expressions of these people in real life and alter them as a computer to give them new life that they didn't think of, but the computer did. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of futurism where we are going to figure out how we are going to relate to the computer and artificial intelligence. And as we train the, our technology to um, be a smarter, smarter mm-hmm. than we are, but, Anyway, that whole idea of artists' engagement with the computer as futurism. And, well, of course, you know, fascism often accompanies those very free, out-there artistic um, movements. And we see a bit of that happening now. How do you mean? Well, with what's happening in America and the election. Right. Well, he's just had an insurrection in the Capitol building. And it's I, like, hmm. And then um, you're saying that art... The discrepancy, the discrepancy between the, the propelling the forward with the computer and, and what a, that gives us access to education, to uh, competing in new ways and so forth. Uh, and if you're not in that genre, then what do you have? How, how are you going to make it? Mm-hmm. How are you going to make it? So I, I think it, a lot of issues are raised about this that are cultural, social issues that aren't necessarily the responsibility of the arts. But we see the arts trying to work a lot in social, political 
arenas mm -hmm. to uh, encourage awareness and and fairness and so forth. Right. But, um, and the well, arts are very complex right now, yeah. for sure. It makes me think of all of those. Well, I would see posts of them um, on Facebook with large projections on the Trump International Hotel um, and Robin, those, Robin other, those other anti-fascist um, and, and sort of um, anti-Trump projections mm -hmm. on monuments and places in Washington. That's Robin Bell, and he, uh, I hired him to be one of my co-teachers when we moved the dance program to film. Oh, wow. So uh, we have a couple of projects where I'm trying to take my incredibly comprehensive uh, archives mm -hmm. that are astonishing, maybe the best of independent artists, at least uh, among the best, uh, and create the future out of the past. Mm -hmm. So taking the, all of my video images, photographic images, interviews, and everything, and recreating it as future, a future art project. And we'll mm -hmm. see. But he's, he's uh, in the ballgame. <laughs> mm -hmm. But his projections on Trump Tower were very impactful. He's a very yeah. positive person. Robin Bell is a very positive person. We did a collaborative project in Corcoran Gallery called Open. Mm -hmm. And it was to celebrate when uh, Maplethorpe got kicked out of the Corcoran by because of the U.S. government not allowing oh, wow. that to happen. And that was sent to WPA, mm -hmm. the Washington Project for the Arts. And that's the organization we were talking about when we began today. Mm -hmm. That Maplethorpe exhibit was sent to the Washington Projects for the Art on G Street. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they weren't allowed. They didn't dare keep it for fear they'd lose all their funding from the federal government. And so um, he did a project to celebrate that time when that exhibit had been removed. Mm -hmm. And he called it Open. And it was like an open tribute to the arts and the space and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a beautiful event, beautiful event in the Corcoran, which is now, of course, boarded up. Oh, yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> so. What's something you're looking forward to in 2021? Well, uh, I have these portraits that I'm doing of the students and, the, and two or three faculty mm. uh, that's called Dance Portraits on Screen 2021. And it's a combination of their personality and the unexpected violence and the... Uh, sense of of depression or uh inactivity and so forth um relating so, to just the environment just and what's portrait, going on it's their portrait so it says dance portraits on screen 2021 mm -hmm. and it's these are just people that are creating gestures mm -hmm. like you just did a gesture mm -hmm. and i thought oh you can come and be in my piece and have these gestures and so forth that mm -hmm. are based on what's happening in our heart and our bodies and our minds. Right. As we sort of navigate later, navigate now. Anyway, that's, yeah. that's sort of simple, but my, uh, I'm hoping to do a, um, an experimental documentary where I take the archives and we act on it through technology to infuse it with another kind of life and yet keep its ancient, its historical life alive mm -hmm. and try and, um, have that uh, one centerpiece of an installation in a museum and then to take 
those archival images, faces, bodies, phrases, and remove them from their original intention and have that just for the value of that moment of that phrase of movement, unrelated to what its original story was, to project that influenced by technology in a museum. So that figure may just move across the wall. Okay. A portrait of me in a certain moment, uh, that eye turns and a green beam comes out of it and so these use technology in the uh, archival images. Right. So these so uh, these moments would actually sort of be taken from those archived uh, media documents and then get projected into the space, right. but it wouldn't be the to- total performance. It would be moments. I love that because it's, yeah. So you see the archive as a resource of of moments or ideas or whatever. Mm-hmm. And would and, you combine a lot of different moments from yeah, various, uh, oh yeah. I've, I've tried, we've approached uh, the Hirschhorn and we've approached art, cats and arts and we've approached uh-huh. Corcoran. So we're hoping when life comes back to the museums, maybe, right. maybe we'll have a chance to do that. I mean, but that Hirschhorn, yeah, the Hirschhorn should really have that, um, they should be honored to have that there, to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, the last before the we closed down shop here in all the Smithsonian museums, mm-hmm. uh, um, I think that uh, the Hirschhorn was moving toward lo- the uh, exhibitions that were stayed up longer. Uh, yeah. That you have something stay up 12 months. Uh, you have to bring a lot of different people in to keep that viable, but that's different than changing exhibits every three months. Is it because so, of funding, or it was I just an know. institutional? I don't know. Maybe fatigue. Right. Yeah, <laughs> could be <fatigued>. tired. <laughs> they're fin- they're incredible. They're fantastic, and it's such a great, fantastic museum. The Hirschhorn. Well, my, yeah, I mean, my favorite thing about the Hirschhorn were all the events that they would throw in. Um, that space that's like in the middle in the cylinder component. Yeah, yeah. I had Incredible. I've had fun in a number of Incredible. events there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Incredible that curved line that goes around the whole building. Yeah, just and it's disorienting t- a bit too because yeah. <laughs> you keep walking around in a circle. <laughs> Great timeline, sort of like going through the timeline. But mm. I don't know. You know, we're going to with all of the data gathering devices we have now. Archives in the arts are going to be incredible. Mm-hmm. And we have to find a, a, a repurposed use for them. Mm-hmm. So that's my new value. Find a, an opportunity for repurposing through technology. Mm-hmm. We'll I see. Love that. We'll see if I die first. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. It was oh, so good. Yeah, I love good. our I love when we have our conversations. <laughs> Do you have any questions, feedback, or want to share a story about reconnecting? You can drop me an email at I miss you podcast at gmail.com. Find and follow the show on Instagram at I miss you podcast. I miss you is hosted, edited, and produced by me with lots of help from the universe. This episode was recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast graphic was designed by Ian Slarsky. New episodes are released weekly on Wednesdays. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher and show some love with lots of stars. It really helps. 
If you would like to support I Miss You, as well as get additional content and access to our members-only Facebook group, where you can connect and share with other listeners, consider subscribing to Patreon. You can find a link to Patreon in our Instagram bio or at our website at imissyoupodcast.com. And finally, reach out, connect, and spread the love by telling all of your friends about our show. Till next time, new friend.